0: Welcome to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. You're listening to the Essential Rx segment hosted by Dr. Lamitra Scott. The Sickle Cell Community Consortium powers the Vitamin SC3 podcast. Please remember that the information you hear on the Vitamin SC3 podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. The information shared is not to be used as medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals. Stay tuned to hear the full episode. To become a member of the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, visit sicklecellconsortium.org.
1: The Sickle Cell Consortium is a collaborative designed a little bit like the United Nations in theory, so that we can bring together many organizations for sickle cell throughout the country and now
2: throughout the world, as well as independent patient caregiver leaders, opinion leaders, advocates, those that are active in this space. And our goal
1: is, what we've always done is bring our community together so that we can create projects, priorities, initiatives, we can figure out what are the problems, needs, and gaps in the sickle cell community, and then figure out how we're going to collectively address this.
2: All righty. Welcome back, everybody, to our next episode on the Vitamin SC3 podcast. Today, we have a very, very interesting topic that I know so many of you are very Um, interested in when it comes to managing sickle cell disease and all of the implications that come along with it. Today, we're going to talk about marijuana uh, from a a different perspective this time. The last time we talked about puff, puff, or pass, whether or not you should actually use it. But today, we're going to get down to the nuts and bolts of what is really going on with the usage of marijuana, CBD, hemp-type products, and sickle cell disease. So Today, we will be talking to Dr. Susanna Curtis, and she is going to explain to us all of the great dealings and the the science behind why marijuana type products can actually work in sickle cell disease. Dr. Susanna Curtis is the Assistant Professor of Medicine at the ICANN School of Medicine and Assistant Director of the Adult Sickle Cell Program at Mount Sinai Hospital. She received her medical degree from the New York Medical College, completed her residency in internal medicine at Montefiore Medical Center, and a fellowship in hematology and oncology at Yale University, where she also completed a PhD in investigative medicine. Her research focuses on understanding the pathophysiology of chronic pain in people living with sickle cell disease and using this to develop targeted treatments. She is particularly interested in examining the utility of cannabinoids for this pain and is currently examining this with the support from the NHLBI. Dr. Curtis, i turn it over to you now.
1: Hi, Dr. Scott. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. I'm really excited to discuss this topic.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. And I think it's definitely something that our community uh, members from, for sickle cell disease, they really are interested in wanting to learn a little bit more about it. So I'll just jump right in with one of my first questions that I know that is burning for a lot of people. When we think about the use of marijuana, hemp, and CBD type products, what is really going on in our bodies to even make this a viable option for patients who have sickle cell disease or any chronic pain for that matter?
1: Sure. So, what's so interesting to me about what I'm going to call cannabinoids? So, any chemical that uh, like CBD, like THC. Um, there's actually over 120 different what we call phytocannabinoids, meaning these medications or uh, drugs made by plants. And so I'm going to start talking about them in general terms, um, though I think when we really get into it, we'll see that if you're talking about something like CBD versus THC, there are big differences. So what's so interesting about them is that the reason that these phytocannabinoids, these chemicals that are found in plants, have any activity in our body is that actually our body makes its own cannabinoids called endogenous cannabinoids. In some ways, this is similar to the same reason that opioids have any effect. Our bodies have an endogenous opioid system. Our bodies actually make opioids and use them as neurotransmitters to transmit signals about pain, among other things. Um, And so similarly, our bodies make cannabinoids. And we actually have two kinds of receptors that our bodies use as neurotransmitters to transmit these signals. Now, cannabinoid receptor one is largely neurologic. We have a lot of it in our brains, in our spinal cord, somewhat in our peripheral nerves. And it transmits signals about pain. Um, but it also can transmit some signals about things like anxiety, sleep, or even appetite, if you think about the classic munchies that we talk about. Um, there is also cannabinoid receptor, too. And cannabinoid receptor 2, interestingly, is located in the immune system. It's in the white blood cells. It's in the lymph nodes. It is somewhat in the nervous system and somewhat in the gut as well, but the locations that it's present in the nervous system and in the gut are actually the immune cells of the nerve system and the gut. And What we're starting to see is that activation of this receptor, cannabinoid receptor 2, it doesn't have any of those psychotropic effects that cannabinoid receptor 1 in our brains does, but it actually seems to calm the immune system down. And in something like sickle cell disease, where we know that inflammation, the over inflammation, pathologic inflammation, too much inflammation can actually make sickle cell disease worse. And so calming that down could theoretically even benefit sickle cell disease. Um, What I think is so interesting when we start to look at all these different phytocannabinoids, however, is that how much effect they have on cannabinoid receptor one, versus cannabinoid receptor 2 versus actually sometimes other nerve receptors in our body can vary so much depending on the chemical substance and that's why we're talking about all these different effects
2: wow so it's almost like our bodies were intrinsically made and created to respond to these substances it almost makes you wonder, why didn't we go to these substances first when we start to think about management of pain and inflammation that is associated with sickle cell disease? That's like mind-blowing. But as with all things, I know that that requires a scientific process, trial and error to actually figure these things out. And I know that you do a lot of research in the area of sickle cell disease and the cannabinoid system. So let's talk about your research that you're doing now to help us understand what types of products or that we'd be looking for. And I know you said the CB1 versus CB2 and different um, hemp products respond differently to those receptors or those receptors respond differently, I guess you could say, to the different products. So can you help walk us through the differences of the products and how they have impacts on the body?
1: Sure. So I'll focus on the two that we know the most about, one that you already mentioned, CBD, um, and then the other most common one, um, THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. Um, Now, THC is what we commonly think of as the active ingredient in cannabis. Um, It has a, it's an partial agonist, which means it has a partial but positive effect, actually on both receptors. So that's why it has some of those psychotropic effects. That's why it makes people high because of the effects on the brain. But that's also why we think it's beneficial for pain in many people. And it actually does also have an effect on that anti-inflammatory receptor as well. Now, cannabidiol, or CBD, interestingly, doesn't really have much of an effect on either cannabinoid 1 or cannabinoid receptor 2. Most of its effects are actually other receptors, and we don't fully understand how it's acting though what we have seen in studies um, both of non-sickle cell and actually in studies of sickle cell mice is that it does seem to have, in particular, an anti-inflammatory benefit, though it doesn't seem to be as effective directly on pain because it's not really hitting that cannabinoid 1 receptor. Um, But, you know, as, as we're talking about, there's over 120 different phytocannabinoids, and, you know, when somebody has Cannabis that say they purchased from the street or even from the dispensary—you know how much THC is in there, how much CBD is in there, how much of those other 120 phytocannabinoids. You know it's going to be a real mix.
2: Hmm, interesting. So when when you talk about going to the dispensary, sometimes they have products that don't have any THC in them, and I know that could be dependent upon what state you're in whether or not products with THC are even legal at this point. And then you have you know the isolates of either one product or the other. So based on what we know right now, when we go to look for products that contain CBD or THC, is it worthwhile looking at products that contain a mixture of the two, or would it be more prudent to look for a product that was just say strictly THC? When patients go to a dispensary, what should they be looking for? And I know if they're written a prescription by their provider, the provider has already discussed this with them. But we're talking about the people that are using it on their own, not necessarily under the direction of a doctor, which we know that some people are doing.
1: Yeah. So, you know, what's so complicated about the question that you're asking is that, unfortunately, because um, cannabinoid products are federally illegal... I can't write a prescription for cannabis and I can't write a prescription even for a patient of mine to go to the dispensary. So what what a medical provider can do is something called certifying a patient. So basically they say to the state, this patient of mine truly does have the qualifying condition that you list as somebody that can have medical cannabis. And in some states that might be sickle cell disease itself. In other states that can be chronic pain. Um, For instance, in New York, the state that I practice in, Sickle cell disease is not listed, but uh, chronic or intractable pain is. But once I've certified that patient and said, yes, this person truly does have chronic or intractable pain, they then have to go to the state. And it's with the state that they'll do the paperwork with, with the state that they'll get the card. And then when they go to the dispensary, what purchases they make are between them and the person at the dispensary. So the physician can't do any prescribing. Um, I do try to do some some recommending and certainly some safety talks, um, but you know technically, I'm not able to prescribe anything. Um, and I think you know what you're discussing is so important, the fact that, at least at the dispensary, as you said, you can get things that are pure CBD. You can get things that are pure THC. You can get combinations. um, You can get things that list other phytocannabinoids. But, you know, I think what's really important is that clearly what you're getting is much more regulated than something that you might purchase on the street. So that's going to make a big difference. And of course, it's something that's going to be much safer because there's no risk of other illicit substances that you might not want being in there because, again, at least it's regulated by the state. Um, now in terms of what I tell patients when they ask, should I be getting CBD? Should I be getting THC? Um, you know, what I say to my patients is that the first thing is that we don't know yet because we haven't seen all these studies fully done in people with sickle cell disease. And I think sickle cell disease is really a very complicated, very unique disease. And so while it's good to see studies done in other diseases, I really think we need to see THC. CBD each really tested in sickle cell before we can really speak to the effects. Um, But in in general, what I do say to my patients is that, first of all, I recommend that they avoid smoked products. Um, Many people say that they like smoked products because the effect is very quick. They can very quickly feel if it's going to help, though the effect also goes away very quickly. Edible products you take much longer to feel the effect. It might be half an hour or an hour before somebody can feel it, but it lasts much longer. It might last up to 8 to 12 hours, which especially if you're in chronic pain could be much more helpful. Um, and the other thing about smoked products is that we do know that smoking cannabis can be associated with cough, with wheeze, um, with other respiratory symptoms, and especially in people with sickle cell disease who are already prone to respiratory issues, who are at risk of acute chest. You know, I really worry that smoking could worsen any possible condition. So I, I tend to recommend to stick to edible products. Um, and what I tell people is that what we know is that in other diseases, THC seems to have the most impact for pain. In sickle cell disease, there's been studies in mice showing that giving medicines that impact cannabinoid receptor one have the best effect for pain as opposed to medicines that only impact cannabinoid receptor two. Um, but that impacting cannabinoid receptor two, and actually there have been some studies with mice as well, looking at CBD can reduce inflammation. Um, so I think that patients ultimately need to have a discussion, um, with whoever they're talking about at their dispensary. They need to figure out what works for them because every person's going to be an individual. Um, and, and we generally tell everybody start low and go slow. Um, some people are more sensitive to things. Some people are less sensitive. And so you might start with a dose and find that it's too low for you and need to go up, but you don't want to start with a dose that's too high and that could be very unpleasant.
2: That is great. So I've got one other question before we get off of uh, dosage forms, and I want to get your uh, thoughts on topical applications. What are your thoughts on the effectiveness of using topical rubs or patches that can be made or compounded that contain um, THC?
1: Yeah, so again, you know, I think we don't know yet. Um, I think there's lots of reasons to think that it could have a positive effect. Um, For instance, when I'm talking to my patients about pain medicines, I'm a big fan of NSAIDs, of ibuprofen, um, Aleve, Advil. And sometimes patients say, well, that bothers my stomach. And I say, oh, well, you know, if if your pain is really in one joint, we can try topical NSAIDs. And we know that that can be helpful for pain relief in one area. So is it possible that there might be a benefit with uh, topical cannabinoids? Certainly it's possible, but I definitely want to see, you know, the research to see not only the effectiveness, but also of the safety.
2: All right. So I'm glad that you talked about safety because up until this point, we've made the assumption that we're talking to adults. Well, as we know, sickle cell disease is a disease of childhood and the children grow up to be adults. So what is your opinion about utilizing CBD THC products in children and is there a minimum age before you should start using it? And I know like from the context of dealing with um, seizures, we know that hemp type products have been approved by the FDA for the treatment of seizures in pediatric populations. What are your thoughts about the use of these products for sickle cell in children?
1: Yeah, so I think, again, it very much depends about what product you're talking about. So there's been a lot of cross-sectional studies, meaning that they didn't start looking at children when they were young and follow them over time. They sort of looked at people as adults and where they were and showed that adults who have been using cannabis products throughout adolescence, Um, had lower educational achievement than adults that weren't using cannabis products in adolescence. Now, of course, there might be a lot of reasons that that is seen, um, but um, neurologists and other people that study the brain do have a real concern that in particular THC that activated that cannabinoid one receptor could have negative impacts on brain development. what i will say is that we also know that experiencing chronic pain has negative impacts on brain development so i'm certainly not suggesting that we want adolescents to not be treated Um, and we don't know what effects opioids have uh, when patients are on them throughout adolescence so i think we still have a lot to learn but given the information where it is right now i would be pretty reluctant to put anybody under 18 on a thc containing product However, I do have a lot of interest in seeing if there might be a benefit in CBD. Again, I would definitely want to see the study first, um, but I think it's a real area of interest. So I know
2: that you have a study that is current is either just now starting
1: or is currently ongoing. Is that correct? Uh, I'm hoping to open it next month, so cross your fingers for me.
2: All right, so tell us a little bit more about your study because a lot of what our community looks at or, you know, may be hesitant about is participating in clinical research. So tell us a little bit about the research that you are planning to start up and how can it help for those people who may want to participate, but, you know, are having questions or reluctant to want to do that?
1: Sure. So, um, My study is examining uh, THC um, because, you know, as we've been talking about, THC really seems to have the strongest effect on pain. Um, And though I certainly do think reducing inflammation can have its own benefits, I think pain is really one of the first targets we need to focus on. Um, And what I'm using is a substance called dronabinol or Marinol that's actually an FDA-approved medicine. It's a pill. Um, It's been FDA approved to either treat nausea or increase appetite. But what it is, is it is a pill of pure synthetic THC. So the reason that I've chosen to start with this product versus other products um, or even medical cannabis is because, you know, I think, again, we need to separate out what each substance, what each chemical does. So I think we need to start just with THC. I think we need to do another study just with CBD to really see the effect of each. Um, And I like that it's an FDA approved product because I know that it's safe. I know that it's standardized and regulated. I know that two milligrams is two milligrams. Um, I like that it's oral. And then the nice thing about it is that because it's already an FDA-approved product, you know, if at the end of the study, if a patient says to me, hey, Dr. Curtis, I really feel like this was helpful for me, it's something that we could talk about me actually prescribing them, Um, which means they wouldn't have to go to the dispensary. They could get it at their normal pharmacy, and they wouldn't have to pay out of pocket, which would be a nice difference. Um, So the way I've designed the study is that people that go on it will either get um, eight weeks of the dronabinol, the THC, um, and the dose is gonna be individualized. So again, we're gonna practice that starting low and going slow. Everybody's gonna start at a low dose and we're gonna titrate up until people are comfortable. And then people, whatever dose is best for them, they'll stay on it for eight weeks. Half of the people will get the medicine and half of the people will get uh, placebo. Now, I think it's important to do this because, you know, we really need to understand if the medicine is having a benefit or not, because I don't want to be recommending to people something that might not help or could even hurt. And so even though I know that it's frustrating to a person to hear, there's a 50% chance I might get not the real thing you know, I think that that's the way to get the best information. And so we kind of have to do this in this study so that we can long term know that we're giving patients the best information.
2: Will the patients still be allowed to take whatever they are prescribed um, for pain while they're participating in the study?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The goal is to potentially give them something that can be helpful. So we wouldn't want to take away anything else that they're using that's helping. So they shouldn't change any other medicines they're taking. The one thing that we do ask patients is it. If they have used cannabis products in the past, that's fine. But for the eight weeks that they're on the study, we need them to avoid any sort of cannabis product because we really want to understand, is this dronabinol helpful or not? And if people are also using other cannabis products, it's going to be hard to know what's having the activity.
2: Right. So it sounds like that based on the research that you're doing, Um, currently, it'll give us a little bit of an insight as to whether or not cannabis type products can be useful as adjunctive treatment options. And it may be uh, for some, once your information comes out, let's just say this product works and people want to back off on the usage of the opioids. I think that time will tell if that will be a viable option to go, and if it does, I think that would be very beneficial for patients in general, because opioids are associated with so many other issues that can complicate the system and actually what's going on with the disease itself. Um, I think a lot of people may not understand that while you may be in pain, all pain does not respond to opioids. And it's important for people to understand that taking more may not necessarily alleviate the issue. And in this case, should it be found that cannabinoid products can actually help, then this may provide that anti-inflammatory effect that opioids just don't provide. So I think there's a lot to be seen um, in the future as to how cannabis type products can work for the sickle cell community.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really hopeful, and I think one point that you made is is a really interesting and really valuable point that all type of pain is not the same. So you know, pain what we call nociceptive pain, pain from tissue damage. You know, you hit your thumb with a hammer, or in the case of sickle cell disease, maybe something like a vascular necrosis where the hips can be very painful or a leg ulcer. You know, that kind of pain can respond well to certain things. But people with sickle cell disease can also have other types of pain. For instance, neuropathic pain, which is pain from nerve damage. People describe it as the burning, shocking pain, stinging pain. And we know that opioids are good for nociceptive pain, but they're not very good for neuropathic pain. And actually, um, cannabinoids in particular have been shown that they might have a benefit in neuropathic pain. So that's one thing that I'm going to look at in this study, is I'm going to be looking at people and seeing, do people that have neuropathic pain have a particular benefit?
2: This is all very interesting. And there's so much happening on the research front for sickle cell disease right now. And I'm very, very, very excited to see what is going to come about um, from the current research that we have for so long. Patients with sickle cell disease didn't really have options but today, you know that's changing day by day as more um, people enter enter into the research space to try to find different therapies that may be beneficial for people who have sickle cell disease.
1: It's really wonderful to see, you know, I think for a long time there really has not been justice in research when it comes to looking at sickle cell. I'm not saying that we've reached equity by any means, we absolutely haven't, but things are at least starting to move in the right direction. So it is really exciting to see the new research, to see what we're learning and to see all these new treatments. And I think we're gonna learn a lot about how can we use these treatments together to make even more progress.
2: Right, I agree. And I know we've talked about pain for a while um, in terms of how cannabis type products can work. I also want people to not necessarily forget about the impacts that cannabis type products can have on the immune system. I know you alluded to it a little bit earlier when we started talking and said, you know, the prevalence of certain cannabinoids receptors is more so, you know, tied to the immune system and where they may be located at. So I know that for patients who have sickle cell disease, also having a compromised immune system can be the the triggering issue or the trigger point that causes a person to go into an, an acute pain episode because of a infection that they may have acquired. So, when we talk about cannabis and the role, and does it really work in sickle cell disease, there are additional benefits outside of just modulating pain that can be received from using cannabis type products. Are you, I know that we, we're still in the, research and discovery phase, but what would you add as far as the benefit to the immune system of using cannabis type products?
1: Yeah, I think that's going to be so important to look at, Um, and especially in something like sickle cell disease, where we know the immune system plays such an important role, both because of the compromised immune system, making people more uh, vulnerable to infections, but also because the immune system can become kind of in overdrive, but in a way that can actually cause damage. And we know that the immune system flaring up, for instance, in response to an infection, could also cause a pain crisis. And so it's really a double-edged sword. So I think Any of these studies looking at um, cannabis or cannabinoids are really going to have to also examine the immune system as much as they can. One thing that's a challenge is that we're still learning what are the best markers? What are the, you know, studies of the immune system that are meaningful? Because there's so many different chemicals and labs that you can look at, and you want to make sure that you're looking at the right ones. And in sickle cell disease, I don't know that we've figured out, you know, these are exactly the best labs to use. Um, We certainly are looking at some markers that we think are important in my study, and I think we'll see what we learn. I'm really excited to see.
2: Okay. Well, that, that sounds all very, very, very promising um, for where we are right now. And I just encourage people who are viewing and listening to our session today that if there are some clinical trials that are in your area that you're interested in, I would suggest that you sign up because a lot of this information is all speculative at this point. But in order for us to actually find out what really works how it works, and the best way to do it is that we have to actually have people to participate. And I know that there may be a little bit of hesitancy um, associated with readily signing up to participate in research, but I just encourage you all to do your background homework. If there is something that you are interested in participating in and reach out to that primary investigator to get some of your questions answered because you may very well be the person that changes the scope on how patients with sickle cell disease are treated from this point forward just by participating in the study. Um, Dr. Curtis, do you have any uh, words that you wanted to suggest for people that may be listening and that are on the fence about clinical studies?
1: Well, I completely agree with everything you've said. You know, I think these clinical studies are so important. I can certainly understand why people might be hesitant. You know, unfortunately, historically, we've seen real abuse of the minority and in particular um, the Black patient in medical studies. And even today, we still see that, unfortunately, there's a lot of systemic racism in medicine and in medical research. But, you know, these studies are the only way that we're really going to discover what new treatments are going to be the most effective for people with sickle cell disease. So for what I would say to anybody that is potentially interested in a study, exactly like you said, talk to the investigator. I love it when people reach out to me and have questions. And make sure that you feel comfortable with that person. That person needs to be listening to your questions. They need to be answering them, listening to you. And if you feel like you have that relationship with that person where where they're really listening, they're really respectful to you, they're really somebody that you can get feedback from, that's gonna be incredibly important. And secondly, what everybody should know is that when you sign up for a clinical study, you always at any time have the right to withdraw. You are never stuck there. If at any point you're uncomfortable or you don't like what's happening, you can say, I wanna stop and that's okay.
2: I think that is the, the best piece of information outside of people being encouraged to join, know you always have an option for an out. So it's not that you are 100% committed if you sign up and you find out halfway through or at whatever point in time that you're involved in it, that something is not going according to plan. You do have an option to, to leave. And up until that time, whatever information you've been able to share or provide for that particular study, Just know that it will not be used in vain because all that information is necessary to come up with what's next on the horizon as far as it comes for identifying new treatments for sickle cell disease. So I want to um, go back to our initial question and make sure that we just answered uh, to the best of our ability the topic of our discussion today. The topic was cannabis, does it really work in sickle cell disease? Based on what we've heard from Dr. Curtis today, we know that our body endogenously creates cannabinoids. And if that is the case, and since that is the case, we actually have receptors that are responsive to these particular agents. So to answer that question, does it really work in sickle cell disease? Yes, because we do know that we have natural products that are of this magnitude that can elicit effects in the body. Uh, what we don't know specifically is you know, the actual dose that is required as far as pain treatment goes. The actual product, whether we're going to use a hundred percent THC, a hundred percent CBD or do we need a combination of the two. I believe that is where we are right now in the the scope of trying to figure out, if cannabis type products can really work in sickle cell disease. It's not a matter of, does it work? It's just how much, which type is, as they say, it's getting into the mud of things and figuring out those distinct details and characteristics of each individual compound that help us in in managing complications associated with sickle cell disease.
1: think we're going to need to understand the safety too. You know, just like opioids can be a very effective medication for certain situations used in a certain way for certain patients, but can be, as you said, unfortunately, very unsafe and not effective for other patients and in other situations. I think with cannabinoids too, we're going to need to understand what are the potential risks and who might benefit from them and, and who might have side effects that they don't like so that we can know that we're using them in the, most effective way, but also in the safest way.
2: Right. I agree. And since we're talking about safety, we want to wrap up with with just saying that the conversation that we've had today, it's strictly more so geared towards the adult population. For anyone interested in treating a pediatric patient or someone less than the age of 18, I really recommend you consulting with a healthcare professional to talk about your particular concerns before going out to your local dispensary or wherever you may go in your area to purchase a CBD type product um, for a, a pediatric use. We just wanna make sure that you're talking with a professional before you decide to go down that route.
1: You know, and I think that's true for adults too. You know, if you're thinking to yourself, hey, this might be helpful for me, I wanna try it. Talk to your primary care provider, tell them, hey, this is something I'm thinking about you know my medical history well, You know, let's talk together and come up with a plan for what's the safest way for me to try this.
2: I like that, I like that. Um, and it also gives the patient a voice, is the shared decision-making as far as what's going to take place in your particular treatment plan. So keeping that line of communication open is key to improving outcomes in sickle cell disease.
1: Absolutely, shared decision-making is really key.
2: So with that, we will wrap up our talk today with Dr. Susanna Curtis. And if you have any questions about her research that she is um, proposing to start or hopeful to start within the next month or so, please feel free to reach out to her. Dr. Curtis, if anybody wanted to contact you, what's their best way to reach you?
1: Uh, probably my email. Um, is there a way if I give it to you that you could provide it like on the link or something?
2: Yes, it will actually be a part of the vitamin SC3 podcast. There'll be a description, um, that goes out to talk about our discussion today and we can put a link in that description. Perfect. Perfect. All right. So with that, we'll wrap up our talk today. Thank you everybody for joining in and we'll catch you on the next episode of the vitamin SC3 podcast. Thanks.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. We hope that you will leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Remember, a new episode is coming out next Monday. So please tune in and enjoy.